AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. And like you said, this is interesting because you don't really expect to get a virus on a computer mm -hmm. when you're at the hospital, maybe another person <laughs> when you're at the hospital, but not from a computer. Uh, this one seems to have caught it from the antivirus. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, I, 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 thought, I think about this sort of problem a lot where you've got two different needs that are competing. You've got the needs of the person on the operating table who has a life to be prepared. And then you've also got the needs of IT, which clearly are not as important, but you know, if, if things are scheduled to automatically happen, they will interfere with each other. And it's a little bit of a challenge too, because you know, you think about the hospital setting and probably, is there really a good time to do the AV scan? Because it's probably a 24 by seven type operation. Good point. Things like that. And then you might think, well, do they really need to be doing the AV scans all the time if it's not connected or stuff like that? But it, like I said, it probably depends on the hospital and on the network and exactly what is connected and probably the administrators of that network have to like customize how that scan is happening if it needs to happen and may be able to turn it down. If you allow your employee or your employees to use their own devices, bring their own devices into the corporate network, what sort of exposure does that right. um, you know, exposed to you and your company, mm -hmm. uh, especially when that device can go to these public Wi-Fi hotspots where they're kind of in a danger zone, maybe they'll get compromised or maybe they go to a conference and they hook up to some public Wi-Fi and now they're compromised and they bring them back into the corporate network and, and use them. Mm -hmm. And you probably as a company don't have um, any sort of management capability of that device like you do with a corporate asset. So I know most companies, ours included, has ways if it's a company device, we can um, get information, log data and whatnot, and also uh, make sure that the patches and updates are and everything are happening on it, where you won't get that with a bring your own device. Um, so it's an interesting article. He talks mostly about the mitigation steps there of what you could do with these types of devices to, um, to make sure that at least they have a minimal level of exposure to vulnerabilities, mm -hmm. whether your users in your company are going to do that. It's just, to me, it was more of, let's think about how to approach bring your own device. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think we've talked about uh, one of the possibilities or the, a smarter approach as opposed to just bringing your personal laptop in, plug it into the local network at work and doing whatever on it, having free reign on the network. Maybe you force bring your own device laptops to go to like a an H hosted virtual desktop or a VM, right. and that's all they can do. So you have some very constrained network access, maybe just RDP or or PC over IP, which is the mm -hmm. better version of RDP. Yeah. I mean that's certainly a possibility. There there are perhaps a number of approaches that could be taken. I think. Um, and I think it's kind of interesting because as near as I can understand, I think BYOD kind of started out as a use your mobile device because, and be able to access corporate assets with a mobile device. But then there was this dilemma, well, what about, you know, uh, usage charges and, you know, how do you deal with things like that? And so the, uh, the notion of partitioning to say, you know, you sort of have a work persona and then you have a, you know, a personal persona. 
and to be able to keep those separate and so there are sort of sandbox type tools that reside on mobile devices to be able to support this thing and I'm going somewhere with this. Okay. <laughs> that whole concept could you know I think it kind of extended in well you know let's take the the more general laptop scenario and you could do sort of the same thing I don't know that there's a way to clearly partition but there you know perhaps there is I don't know of any software tools that really do that I mean you could argue maybe you have a VM that's specifically for work you know that'd be one perhaps way to do it but I think you know kind of thinking how I would approach this personally that is if I wanted to bring my own device to work I would almost embrace, you know, signing off and say, you know what, manage it as a corporate asset effectively. I get to choose what device I'm using, I get to use it for the, my things as well, but lock it down. You know, I, why, why should I, <laughs> you know, I don't really want to have to do all that stuff. I'd rather have somebody else do it, I mean, other than for the learning experience perhaps, but. The easiest so, way is probably to do a, a, a dual boat with you know, dual encrypted partitions. That'd be another way to do it as well. Perhaps. Because that way it makes it a lot harder for the user to accidentally do something on the corporate side that was supposed to be personal or vice mm -hmm. versa. That's true. I, I think one of the flaws that you run, and I think this is, feeds right into the sort of the dilemma, is I think one of the flaws in that thinking is that we rarely are just at work or just this at is, home. I mean, we, we're living our lives while we're at work we're living our work while we're at home, and so there's, all, there's not really a, a clear separation between the two. So you need to, at very least, to be able to transition between them very easily, and at best, to be able to kind of, you know, in fact, blur the lines and manage that a little bit. So I, I kind of equate this to, um, if I can equate this to something at home, it's it's our dilemma with IoT devices. So when mm -hmm. you're at home and you have an IoT device, you typically don't want that IoT device to sit on the same LAN segment as the rest of your protected um, components, mm -hmm. right? Your yeah. so typically what they right exactly. <laughs> so typically what they yeah. say is you should have your IoT devices on a separate network than mm -hmm. your so typically you know you should probably be able to do that same thing that same scenario and bring it into a corporate environment where you keep things that you don't know about, you think mm -hmm. are, you know, you label them unsecure or unknown, mm -hmm. and you keep those separated. So things like on, you know, when they come in via VPN, you could, by profile, mm -hmm. understanding that this device is not corporate, you know, doesn't, um, mm -hmm. it's, it's not a corporate asset, keep it off on a, on a separate VPN profile, right? right? And keep it separated from the rest of your cor corporate network. Right. Obviously, you'll have to open certain things up so that they can get to certain things, but keeping it in a, in a separated area, I think, is a smart move. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's, uh, so things can be done with the network access control, not assigning DHCP addresses right. unless the device is authenticated, recognized, and managed, and protected in a proper way. And in fact, that's a similar model that's used in uh, MDM mobile device management to make sure that if you're providing access to corporate assets that there's a mechanism to do that. I'd like to see more action on the side of ad companies personally. I'd mm -hmm. like to see them either doing more vetting of the backgrounds of the companies that are providing ads to them. I'd like to see them try and limit the content that they types that they push. Mm -hmm. If you don't have to push flash to my browser, please don't. Mm -hmm. If you don't have to push Silverlight and other things like that, please don't. Mm -hmm. If there's any way that if you're a provider 
you have an agreement with whoever you're taking these ads from that you host the content yourself and you run a scan on it to make sure there's nothing fishy going on. Mm -hmm. Because if I, if I tell you I've got my ad, it's here at ad.jpg, you know, or, or ad.txt, you know, if I wanted to change the content type on the back end, sometimes it's going to still work. It's going to be rendered by the browser as the type that it is, and then we're, we've got the same problem again. Mm -hmm. We've talked about, um, you know, connected cars and, uh, some people who have tried to, you know, directly attack cars themselves and the interfaces mm -hmm. that they have. This is a little bit different, which I thought was interesting in that um, a researcher, uh, Craig Smith, um, he's actually a part of a couple of different uh, consortium groups that are trying to improve the security around uh, uh, automobiles and electronics within There's them. It's white hat activity. Right? It's white hat activity. Um, but he's moved from being having some proof of concept to actually a, a lot more robust um, uh, design here. Mm -hmm. So uh, essentially what we're talking about though is it's a car that he has weaponized the car such that when the mechanic plugs into it with their computer. So when you bring it into the mechanic at the shop they have a you know a computer system that plugs in and it can infect the computer system through the car. So it's a you know Trojan car just kind of similar to how, you know, we always warn people about, you know, your USB thumb drive. If you find one, don't stick it in your computer because you could infect your computer. So in the same way, if you don't trust the car, uh, not that this would be a normal circumstance, I wouldn't think, um, but it's an interesting kind of uh, attack vector. Mm -hmm. He also has kind of shown that once he can pivot over to that mechanics workstation, that actually can interface with a lot of different models of cars. So this is an agnostic type of attack, uh, independent of whatever model the car is, mm. and uh, potentially can pivot and infect new cars as they plug in, uh, and it acts as kind of the host infection vector at that point. Um, and a lot of these mechanics computers can overwrite the firmware on uh, cars, because that's one of the capabilities they have um, as part of their processes. So it's an interesting attack vector one that hopefully isn't going to become a real problem, but it's definitely something you want to bring to light mm -hmm. um, that people should be thinking about and addressing. Yeah. So. so what is the interface that they're using here? Do you know? I'm not positive. I'm going to guess it's probably related to the ODB2 ODB, port, yeah. whatever that they have right. on there, because um, I think that's mostly how people interface with uh, the automobiles, but I'm not positive. So. Right. And, and I think, you know, my, my mindset had been, and I think partly because it kind of grew up as a relatively... Um, you know, kind of a mundane interface, and I think it's been becoming more sophisticated over time that, you know, originally when they started putting control modules in the cars, they had this old protocol where you'd hold the brake and turn the key and then let the brake off and then turn the key again or something, you know, crazy thing. And then the display, the little right, engine right. service light would flash a few times, like there's your code, and then you go and figure out what the diagnosis problem and now they've got, you know, you plug it in and you've got the computers and it tells you all kinds of things about the history and things. And so it, it hadn't really kind of occurred to me that there might be a way that you could, and I'm assuming some sort of buffer overflow to be able to inject things into the computer right. and then be able to have it actually attack the diagnostic system, you know, and, and be able to, to actually spread malware in that way. So it's good it's, uh, you know, somebody that is uh, doing research and in the light of good right. is uh, investigating this, kind of, right. you know, trying to say, hey, we should be paying more attention to this. Can I tell you a personal story? Absolutely. This, 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 <laughs> this will be great. So last year, I sent 3.5 million phishing emails. 
And that's how I mean, you know, fishing emails I, I sent. $3.5 million. And my third book was released last year and, and all about fishing. So I'm not saying this to brag, but I think I would call myself like a subject matter expert on fishing. And I clicked on a fish last year. <laughs> and it was perfect, you know. So I'm, I'm preparing for DEF CON. We have three major competitions. We're running a whole village out there. And I had all this stuff ordered from Amazon. And, I, you know, my office is a wreck. Boxes are piled up everywhere. And I get this email that says, one of your recent orders will not be um, sent due to a declined credit card. And now my rules, you know, open your browser and type it in. Don't click on a link. Hover. I didn't do any of that. I was stressed and I was rushed and I clicked the link. And a beautiful-looking Amazon page opens, and I start to type in my credentials. And before I click the enter, I look up at the browser bar, and I see, you know, something, something, dot, ru. And it wasn't Amazon. Wow. It, was a, it was a real Russian hacker website. I stop, and I'm like, holy crap, I, I, just, I just clicked on a fish. I just <laughs> actually got – I'm the guy who writes these things. I shouldn't be clicking on them. And it was a real humbling moment for me. And I sat there and I said, you know, so many times in this industry we say things like, uh, no patch for human stupidity. I hate that statement because that means if you fall for this, you're stupid. I don't think I'm stupid. So, and I fell for it. So what does that mean? Well, that fisher got me with the right emotional trigger at the exact right time, and I took action that I shouldn't have taken. And if I had spent two seconds, I, I went back and I looked at that email after I realized I wasn't. I went and, you know, put everything through Wireshark and checked the page and inspected, make sure I didn't get any kind of infection. I went and looked at the email, and it was for, like, a George Foreman grill and lead press on nails. You know, I mean, I never ordered those two things. Well, okay, I never ordered those two things together for Vegas, let's say. But, you know, here I had this email, and it was like, you know, I should have read it. And if I read it, I would have been, oh, man, that wasn't me, and I wouldn't have fell for it. But it was fear and stress and anxiety and all those emotions and feelings kicked in, and bam, I clicked the link and almost gave my credentials over. So it is, it is um, people often say, I don't want to tell anyone that I clicked the fish because it's embarrassing that I was so stupid. Well, you know, yeah, is it embarrassing? Yeah, am I proud of the fact that I clicked? No, I'm not. But the fact is, if a guy who sent 3.5 million phishing emails and wrote a book on fishing can click on a fish, I think anybody can click on a fish. So it's better to report it than it is to try to, to, try to hide it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Sorry for that rant, but no, that was to do it. that was a, a great <laughs> personal story. I mean, I guess the moral of the story, like you said, is even the most seasoned expert in the field can be, you know, tricked uh, if the right circumstances arise. So I guess the the right answer is never get stressed, right? You have yeah. to have to yeah. take it slow. <laughs> sort of a, I guess, a pop quiz here for anybody that might be interested in running a hunting pot. You know, you you alluded to or you discussed, you know the fact that they were doing these guessing activities and they got into this thing and they tried to do downloads and they might try to do download service attacks. What are the kinds of controls that are recommended to put in place if somebody were to do this to make sure that they're not becoming a part of the problem? Yeah, well, it, uh, any place that I've got a honeypot set up, I have a variant of the honey wall that the uh, HoneyNet project used to maintain although that's been that hasn't been maintained for some time now mm -hmm. um, but essentially uh, I limit the amount of outbound traffic so that we don't become part of the problem using snort inline I can 
in some cases, as long as it's not encrypted, defang the, you know, their exploit attempts going outbound. The honeypot environment, uh, when they successfully get in, it looks like a Linux system, but if you poke around in it too much, you'll discover that it's there's only a handful of things that you can really do. Mm-hmm. You can download tools because I'm going to let them download their tools so that I can see them. But there isn't a whole lot that you can do um, outbound beyond a, you know, a wget or a curl mm-hmm. kind of thing. Yep. Um, those, those are some of the basic controls that I put on, on the honeypots that I've got. Okay. Um, if I'm if I'm running, you know, a a WordPress honeypot or something like that, you know, basically I'm only going to let in uh, the the exploit attempts to try to capture the um, the attempts and and maybe let them try to download additional tools. But beyond mm-hmm. that, I'm not going to let them execute anything else. That kind of thing. All right. I guess the one other thing I was going to offer is to make sure it's isolated from any enterprise assets, so that uh, there's any if there's any possibility of something going wrong, you've got a safety valve there. Right. Yeah. If these, if anybody actually were to manage to break out of of the you know the limited environment into the the host OS on the honeypots that I run, they're not going to be able to to jump back into our enterprise. You know, they're all firewalled mm-hmm. off. The thing that I always laugh about is is I, I have this date that I'm going to retire, and that has to be before January or January 19th, 2038. And because that is when epic time runs out. So in the old Unix days, we had a signed integer, which was 32 bits long, and it runs out a number of digits on January uh, uh, 19th of 2038. And so if you have an older system that has not been updated to, to change that to 64 bits, Time ends on that date. Mm-hmm. So that that's the last day that I, I, I know I have to retire before that date. <laughs> because there's a, yeah. there's a lot of systems out there that are not going to have updated to 64-bit time. Yeah, so it's a, what you're telling us is January 19th, 2038 is the new Y2K. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Do you remember the Y2K <laughs> yeah. thing, John? <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, and, and when I had Unix systems, I didn't really care too much about Y2K because cause it didn't bother me, right? And I was working Unix admin in 2000, and I didn't care because my, my systems ran great, but I know a lot of the other systems had problems. Mm. But this this is it. This is the yeah. dead. This is the drop-dead date. If you've not updated to newer operating system, newer kernel, this this is it. All right. Well, it's like you said, most have been updated, and uh, hopefully that'll be the case as we go forward. I remember, you know, the Y2K thing was a big concern. A lot of work went into it. And um, it turned out to not be that big a deal after all, perhaps because a lot of work went into it. So uh, I think the, uh, some of the effort had already been put into correcting this problem. Hopefully it'll be a, a non-issue by the time 2038 rolls around. Actually, I, I feel pretty safe myself because I have an old computer and it would take it weeks to do this. <laughs> but nevertheless, I, I think some of us have more modern computers. And so let's take a little bit of a look at how we should be protecting ourselves. The first one, mm. you know, obviously you want to have a good backup of your data. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, consider the layers of security that you want to have just to prevent having getting the malware in the first place. Uh, I, I think, Colin, you, and a lot of these are basically sent through some email path. Yeah, and so you want to have a good email filtering mm-hmm. 
solution in place to be able to hopefully not let those into the into your enterprise in the first place. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, if you're using an email service as a consumer, same kind of thing. Make sure you're using a service where you're not getting a lot of garbage mail. That's that's a pretty good indication. If you're getting a lot of garbage in, garbage email, mm -hmm. then the bad stuff's more likely to leak through as well. Right. Yeah. Um, but then, as a user, just looking at your email, if it doesn't look right, don't open it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? Good user education. Yes. Yeah, good user practices education. Your practices, company, right? and let people know what to look so, for. Um, and yeah. So, a reminder, you know, we've had Murray on the program here, our little mascot for associated with uh, our own internal awareness program. He can help with these kinds of things. I think there are a couple of a few samples of, of Murray's videos on the, on the internet available for yeah. folks to take a look at. And then uh, next one would be you want to make sure your antivirus is up to date on the computer itself. So if it doesn't get infected, hopefully the uh, antivirus solution is up to date on being able to protect against that. Right. Now, generally, the next layer, the fifth that uh, us as analysts tend to, to look for is that command and control activity. So uh, this is a case where that may not be available to us. So. Yep. We're going to need to look for other ways to be able to pick up on this type of activity. But yep. at least you have the first four layers that we described, mm -hmm. and um, not, not to mention the actually having a decent backup. So basically five layers of protection here. A common misconception I find in the corporate environments is that people always assume that fishers, when they're malicious, are going to go for something really deep and dark, like we want your credit card or we want your usernames and passwords. But there's multiple layers of phishing. Like phishing could be used just for OSINT or open source intelligence gathering. Um, they can maybe just try to get one piece of data out of this this fish. And maybe that piece of data is just that this is a live email and you'll reply to it. And then they use that email to now search the web and find out where you've used that on forums, what um, social media you have with that email address, and they'll scrape information on you and use that information to develop a more targeted spearfish towards you. So there's multiple layers, right? I, I would say that there, to me there's only a couple differentiators with phishing, and you have the spam, which is just those ads that really aren't targeted to you, and it's not malware, it's nothing like that. They just send it out to millions of people or hundreds of thousands of people, and they hope you click the link because they're looking for you know, um, uh, bank data or credit card data because you ordered some Viagra from Canada you know, from a fake website or something to that effect. Those spam emails are one section, but everything else after that, I would put in the phishing category. Everything from a simple 419 scam all the way up to really detailed spear phishing. Take this study with a grain of salt, right? Because, um, you know, it, 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 it did seem like a pretty um, extensive study. They, you know, they, they went and they, um, they surveyed, surveyed something like 10,000 hackers across uh, the United States, uh, UK, and Germany. They also, the, the report that that was actually produced um, for this particular piece about the, about, you know, how much cybercrime actually pays, um, they sampled um, more than like 300 respondents of this survey that they took. But unfortunately, there were some areas that we all know have a lot of this happening that weren't included as part of like the- Like Russia. Like Russia, like Brazil, like China. Uh, weren't part of this, so so you have to sort of take the numbers with a little bit of a grain of salt. So, but there were some interesting things that came out of out of the out of the study. So, it says that the average cyber criminal brings in about thirty thousand dollars a year, which is 
what they're saying about a quarter of the salary of a a white hat, you know, so somebody right. who's in the in the you know security profession, you know, a legitimate security profession. So they're saying that's a, a quarter of the salary. So the other interesting thing was that if a cyber criminal is looking at a target and it and they spend more than one week trying to find some sort of attack vector to get in, that they usually quit, um, which was interesting. I'd never seen that type of you know timeline put put it you know put forth for how long do I actually spend before I say this is not going to be worth my time anymore. And then and then the other thing that they said was that it takes attackers 147 hours to plan an attack against a well secured target, as opposed to spending a little less than half that time, 70 hours for easier targets. Which, you know, again, makes, makes sense, but, you know, it's interesting that they were coming up with 147 hours, so, you know, so. See, I kind of think of two different uh, actor sets when we think about that. So you got this actor set who's actually working against maybe a target trying to get into it. But when I think of cybercrime, a lot of the cybercrime is, you know, just malware that they'll deploy on victim machines. So. I don't know if that's accounted in here. How much time does it take me to build a piece of malware then then figure out I got to get a list of people to send it to, or I got to figure out how I'm going to send it, you know, distribute my malware, get it on target machines mm -hmm. and then start getting credentials back to me so that I can start stealing money from their bank accounts or whatever. There there actually is a full there's a full paper, a full report. The report is actually called Flipping the uh, the Economics of Attacks. Securing your cloud applications and the environment that you're working in really is up to you. And uh, so it's a, this is really providing some tips along those lines. So the first one, uh, <laughs> first one they point out is that, I mean, this is a, a quote from the article here, don't let the developers run the show. I, I don't think that's exactly, I mean, it's a little insinuative, but really what it comes down to is, um, you know, creating cloud images ahead of time that the developer organization or that the application developer, developers would use with the basic security practices and configurations in place so that you don't have to be worried about the developers doing those things. So I think that perhaps a better way of describing this is don't depend on the development team that's under pressure to create features and get applications out there to actually be, I mean, they may be interested in security and doing it right, but it's not necessarily their priority. So you have to do some things ahead of time or behind the scenes to help them out in doing that. So, uh, and this is very similar to the practices that we've been putting into place in terms of our use of cloud activities as well. So very consistent. And then the second thing they sort of point out is make sure you provide a separation between the test environment that is set up a cloud infrastructure for test and a cloud infrastructure for applications. Try to keep those things separate because you don't want a flaw in the development to be able to uh, to uh, extend into your uh, production applications. Second one, uh, very straightforward, take away the user accounts. That is, you know, if you, particularly when you're starting to mechanize and auto automate things, create accounts that are specifically for APIs and give them only the privileges that they need. So uh, we call that the concept of least privilege or separation of duties in a sense uh, that, uh, that we implement as a part of our policies, uh, good practices in general. And with the opportunities that APIs provide you, uh, it gives you an opportunity to really constrain and actually understand what a particular user should be able to do. It makes the security analyst 
challenge much more simple because anything outside that bound should be a, a strong flag of a problem. The next one here is uh, basically use the tools that are made available to you. You know, a cloud service provider, a good cloud service provider, by the way, uh, I think these are attributes that you want to look for in a cloud service provider. That is, you know, they may have certificate management functions, encryption tools, hardware security modules, you know, for storing keys, you know, and I think that's kind of an important thing that is, you know, when you're trying to protect private keys, having hardware that's designed for that really helps to prevent, you know, Heartbleed was a big problem because the OpenSSL library could potentially expose the keys. If your keys are protected in hardware, it helps to prevent you from, from that kind of a threat. So having a hardware module for doing that. You know, uh, FIPS 140 uh, basically specifies um, requirements for that type of thing. And then, um, you know, web application firewalls. You want to be able to put a firewall in front of your thing. Uh, we have a big program internally to uh, virtualize security functions around cloud applications. So uh, those are some other things that you might want to look for. Uh, treat security like software development. That is, uh, security needs to be tested just like the software needs to be tested. And if you find problems with it, treat it like it's a, you know, a system outage just like anything else. I know, I, I recall basically using this scenario like, uh, you know, a person has had a problem with their computer and they'd say, you know, what am I supposed to do? Well, pretend it caught fire. How would you treat that situation? And it's a similar kind of scenario here. Treat security issues as importantly as, as a, uh, you know, any other type of a system outage or something like that. Don't forget the non-security tools. You know, we've been talking a lot about mass destructive malware. It's one of our fundamental predictions. It's certainly ransomware has been an issue. So make sure you back up the data, either mirrored or keep it offline, those types of things. And then uh, last but not least, you remember the basics. You know, anything that's exposed to the internet, particularly when you're working in a cloud environment, the tendency will be that you're gonna have administrative interfaces that are perhaps exposed to the, to the internet. There are probably controls that you can put in place to say, you know, I'm only gonna be coming from this address. So use that firewall to your advantage. But on top of that, use multi-factor authentication to make sure that somebody can't be successfully doing password guessing attacks. Have we ever talked about password guessing attacks on this program? I don't think we, no, you know, of course you know, we have. <laughs> I think we have. <laughs> I think just two weeks ago, Jim Clausing went through a big uh, dissertation on, on uh, and a very interesting one on uh, password guessing activity. So, you know, use unique accounts per user, no root access without first logging in as a normal user. And uh, it basically, as I said earlier, least privileges. So lots of good suggestions. I've been kind of rambling here, but uh, it was a very short article, very much worth the read. We'll provide the URL. And uh, I recommend that, uh, like I said, if you're going to cloud or doing things in cloud, make sure you have some good cloud-specific practices in place. Many of them are really basic. Now, CTFs, they're fun for people like us, right? Keeps us sharp analytically. It helps us to keep our offensive skills up to date so we know how to protect against certain things. Mm -hmm. It's a really good, safe way for people to explore security kind of offensively and def defensively together 
competition, I find, is the best way to bring out that talent. I know you feel the same way. I, I do feel the same way. I've played a couple of CTFs. I can't say I've done incredibly well, but I've done well enough, and I've certainly learned something every time I did it. Yes. So um, I think the last one I participated in, I know you participated in, was the Sands Holiday Hack for this past year, which was a very involved one, I think, this year, right? That was yes. the IoT one. It was uh, very involved, very fun, and I learned so much. You know, the technology is always changing, and the way you have to protect things is always changing. And the way you have to attack things kind of stays the same in principle, right? But the, the mechanics of certain exploits, mm -hmm. they kind of change. So participating in these CTFs is definitely one way to keep your kind of tools sharpened and, and knowing what's out there, um, being able to defend against it. Yeah, well, I certainly hope that people come up with new modules for this game. And hopefully over time, you'll get something. I keep thinking of like reverse metasploit, where instead of coming up with attack tools, you're coming up with Defend, not defendable, but vulnerable systems, and you just drop them in and, and play each game as you can. So, Splash Data came out with their list of the top 25 passwords that they saw people using this year. This comes from about 2 million passwords that were leaked in various forums on the internet. Mm -hmm. And they analyzed those. And basically, this list is what not to use for a password. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're, they're top 25, and I talked about this a little last year, too, when the, the report for 2014 came out. But the, their top two passwords were the same this year as they were last year. Number one was 123456, and number two was password. Mm -hmm. I don't know why anybody in their right mind would ever use those passwords anymore. But those were the top two passwords that they found among these two million leaked passwords that they saw this year. And most of the passwords on the list are the same bad passwords that people have been using all along. Mm -hmm. The highest debuting new one this year came in at number 11, and it was welcome. Well, okay, that's not a real hard password to guess either. Well, it's actually a little contrary to what you would expect a password to be doing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Now, there, there were a couple new ones on the list this year that were 10 characters. Okay, good for, good for you for making it a little longer, but <laughs> it was 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 0. And Q-W-E-R-T-Y-U-I-O-P. Just going right across the top line of the QWERTY keyboard. Right. So those are not particularly helpful. There were a couple that returned to the list after being off last year. Uh, those were Princess and Password with a zero for the O. The uh, guys who did the report wanted to make a big deal out of the new ones at number 23 and 25, Solo and Star Wars. You know, the new Star Wars movie just came out in December. There's was a lot of hype about it last year, so there's talk maybe that's why it was princess returned to the list after a year off mm -hmm. but come on people <laughs> you know pick better passwords seriously microsoft obviously we all i think we all know and we probably talked about it microsoft has their own bug bounty um program mm -hmm. and their bug bounty program there was there was actually uh, somebody from microsoft that that chimed in 
Um, and uh, they had said, you know, hey, yeah, we, you know, usually this th these types of things, we like to come through our bug bounty. And in particular, this kind of vulnerability presented to us would probably pay out somewhere between fifty dollars and $100,000. So as the writer of the vulnerability, going either going to sell it on the dark web or selling it directly to Microsoft almost mm. unless he could sell it twice exactly. uh, well three yeah <laughs> three different people yeah. right I don't know but, but wait if he goes to Microsoft he'll get a shirt too uh, uh, you gotta, you gotta to think ahead shirt. Yeah, I'm gonna go to Cafe Press and make my own shirt. Microsoft shirt. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> and that was actually one of the key points was that there is quite a bit of variation between like how much certain people would pay for it. So, in, you know, in the market, what what is something like this actually worth? Yeah, I haven't gone shopping for zero day uh, bugs no, lately, so no. I don't really know what the average price right. is. Whether well, it sounds like ninety thousand from our discussion here might be a little on the high side. Well, I mean, you got to factor Possibly. in the fact that it apparently works on all Windows versions. That is pretty good. Yeah, I mean, the the fact that Microsoft in their bug bounty program is willing to pay out a hundred k for a you know a full bypass of EMET makes that pretty significant if, in fact, he really is able to bypass it. The next story that uh, I'll go ahead and cover this one here. Um, DeRay McKesson is an activist, and uh, you know basically what had ended up happening to him, he was the victim of an attack. Attackers gained access to a cell phone account. Now, this wasn't an AT&T account, but ultimately what it came down to is his, his mobile service provider was social engineered, and they were able to gain access to the account. And I think this is one of the fundamental challenges that as a service provider, it's the balance between providing friendly customer service, right. you know, I've got a problem yeah. with my service, please help me fix it, yeah. versus the, uh, you know, basically providing good security. And, you know, unquestionably, the mobile service provider made a mistake here. So let's put that on the table for the moment. Ultimately, what ended up happening is that the attackers were able to uh, gain access to his phone number, and consequently gain access to his SMS messages. Now, he had had what we're going to call two-factor authentication set up on apparently a couple of email accounts as well as his Twitter account. Ultimately, what it came down to is uh, they were able to bypass the two-factor authentication and gain access to those accounts. Now, the question is, if you have two-factor authentication, how did this happen? Well, you know, when we think about two-factor authentication, there are actually two things that are generally associated with two-factor authentication, something you have and something you know. Now, in this case, they're really kind of, I guess, using the notion of having access to SMS as one of those factors, and presumably your password being, you know, the password for access to the account being the other factor, something you have and something you know. Now, I think the real definition of two-factor really is something you physically have, physically a physical have, right. thing, not access to a particular account, but you know, we'll, we'll, we'll let that slide for a moment here. Ultimately, what ends up happening in this particular case is, um, and I, I can't speak for the email accounts, but I think there are a lot of accounts that do this. I don't want to pick on Twitter in particular, but in this particular case, Twitter allows you to reset your password exclusively using SMS. So you have the option of having the password sent to you by email or having it sent to you by SMS. And you know, Brian Krebs had pointed out some time ago as, opposed to, as a part of his book, Spam Nation, I think it was actually a, an addendum to the book where he points out that you know, your crown jewels are effectively access to your email. That is, 
almost any account you have anywhere, if somebody gets access to your email, they can get a password reset and have it sent through email. Well, this is a case where you get the choice between SMS or email. Uh, in this case, they got access to SMS, were able to reset his password, gain access to the Twitter account, and, uh, and post, you know, effectively, I guess, some abusive messages. I didn't actually see the messages. But ultimately, what it comes down to is I think, you know, yes, the mobile service provider made a mistake here. Uh, it's very difficult to balance when somebody comes in and says, you know, I need uh, help with my service. Uh, but this is a case where two-factor authentication is being misrepresented. It is not two-factor authentication unless you have to have both things in order to gain access to the account. So, and this is uh, just a snapshot of what the uh, Twitter uh, reset is. You know, you have the radio button to choose between a text code that is SMS or an email link, having a, a link sent through email to uh, regain access to it. And they even, you know, give you the last two digits of the phone number to, so that you can verify that it's going to go to the phone number that you're, uh, you're expecting, so. The question I would have is, you know, uh, on your, mobile device you can get like the RSA app mm -hmm. for the RSA token. It's a soft, I guess, whatever. Do, and I've never really looked into this myself, does anybody know if, is that portable? Like could you port that, that to another device or is it actually physically tied to like the hardware ID of your device, that key? I don't know for certain. My, my understanding is that it's actually tied to the device. But ultimately I think it's coming down to the, the isolation of the app itself is the boundary of security there. So it's, I don't think it's actually proving that you have that mobile device. It's really basically proving that you have that app. Hmm. Okay. But, you know, there, there, I am not aware of any situations where that's been compromised at this point, but it's, um, you know, it's certainly one of these things that ultimately is gonna be put to the test in the long yeah, run. Yeah, and even if you had a smart device and had something else on that that could access what was happening with the RSA mm -hmm. app, it could be shuttling off the numbers as they come out. I don't know, yeah. just thinking out loud, but it seems like it's very hard unless you have one of those little physical tokens that have no access mm -hmm. to anything else yeah. that just display a number. You know, that's really the only 100% surefire yep. way, I guess. The least convenient, but the, probably the most secure. In fact, right. you know, there was a time ago when, um, and, and you know, this was many years ago, probably 15, well, maybe even 20 years ago, IBM started incorporating hardware into their laptops that uh, that basically provided some security features, it, you know, as an isolated hardware component, yeah. but it added cost to the devices. Mm -hmm. And I think ultimately it wasn't competitive perhaps before its time. I think if somebody were to reintroduce something like that, particularly in a mobile device, that basically to have some hardware in the device that's dedicated to providing an authentication capability, you know, maybe a little segment of the display that's dedicated to that function would potentially, uh, you know, pay off and, uh, particularly in high, high risk environments or high security environments, uh, you know, particularly the financial community where they're concerned about those types of things, very sensitive about their devices they purchase and that right, type right. of thing. So, um, you know, we'll have to see as time goes on of whether this type of thing goes, uh, it develops a, a, a lot better. And I know, you know, there's work that's being done to help tie the actual registration process. You know, the SIM card is very difficult to, to clone uh, you, you actually at least have to gain physical access to it at the very least. So mm -hmm. uh, that's a case where there's uh, some good possibility in improving the verifying that you have, you know, you physically have something. I think some of the recommendations, you know, people have to understand before we detect this is you still, of course, you'll never get it from anything but approved app stores. A lot of this stuff comes from what they call knockoffs. 
So like if somebody comes up with some brand new, you know, state of the art game or somebody everybody's playing, you know, you go look for a free version of it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you avoid those knockoffs. Rooting the device, and then just generally be aware what's on the device. You know, kind of keep an eye out for, you know, unusual behavior or um, if it asks for additional permissions that you say, well, why did I just download this game? Why is it needing access to my phone? You know, those are things just, you know, it's the stuff we talk about, I think, you know, every week. <laughs> Chris, I guess one final question. Um, if you're training, uh, you know, your employees or uh, people in your organization about the one or two things to look out for with respect to social engineering, uh, what would you recommend that they should be looking out for? Wow. I'm, I'm limited to two. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would have to say probably first and foremost is phishing emails um, and more targeted phishing emails, right? So this would be number one. It's just that the, we're still seeing lots of general fish, but we are seeing a lot more targeted phishing emails coming to people because of how much social media is being used by everyone. They're on every social media platform known to man, and attackers are quickly learning how to get that data. And with the breaches from healthcare and Target and all these other big companies, guaranteed your name's out there somewhere in some you know black market sales uh, event, and that is being used to scrape data on you, and they're developing mass amounts of spear phishing emails. So that's number one. And uh, number two, I would say, is vishing. Uh, you asked about that before. And we didn't get a chance to talk a lot about that, but that is a huge vector right now. Spoofing servers and, and that kind of uh, uh, tech that is used for, for vishing is so cheap. It's so easy to set up um, that vishing is being used fr from all over the world. Every, every country that's going through bankruptcy or problems, we're seeing a mass increase in vishing. When we had economic problems downfall here in the States, we saw a massive increase in vishing. We're seeing it on a corporate level. We're seeing it in multi-stage social engineering attacks where they'll send you a fish and then call you on the phone right after to get you to click malware that's in the email. We're just seeing the phone being used so much more in social engineering attacks. So a lot of times people pick up the phone, they see caller ID, and they automatically trust it. And there is no hover link when it comes to vishing. So we're telling a lot of people just be aware with the vishing calls. Don't answer questions that don't make sense. If someone calls you and tells you they're Microsoft, they're the IRS, they're, they're the FBI, don't believe it. Um, you know, don't fall for those things. You need to verify these facts before you give out any personal identifying information. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, with vishing, I think there's still, uh, most people kind of think if I'm getting a phone call, there's a lot less likelihood that it's going to be some kind of malicious you know, person on the other end, whereas with email, probably 10 of my emails are bad and one's good, you know? So there's definitely, people are trained to know about email a lot more than the, the phone type of phishing. So uh, I agree, it's, a, it's, it's one that is definitely on the rise and people should be wary when they're receiving a phone call. Is this really my bank? Is it really whoever? And if it is, don't give them your info, call them back. Um, instead of trusting that they're who they say they are. Um, I agree 100%. And, and because vishing does take the, the, the human element, you need a person yeah, to, yeah. to make vishing work. It is, like you said, it's not as frequently used as phishing, but it's being used more and more. 
I mean, just this past uh, few months ago, there was a huge IRS phishing, uh, and they had call centers of dozens of people, dozens and dozens of people in these call centers just randomly calling people each and every day, telling them that they're, they're uh, behind tax uh, from five years ago as going to lead to an arrest warrant and getting people to either give credit cards or Western Union or PayPal money over. And we're talking about four to $7,000 per person was wow. the average loss, and this is all over the phone. So, wow. uh, you know, imagine if you're only getting a 5% close ratio, but you're doing thousands of calls a day. It still ends up being hundreds of thousands of dollars a week and, and lost just from one call center. And they had multiple call centers set up. Uh, Vishing is just a, it's a huge vector right now. The views expressed on AT&T Threat Track are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.